All right, well, we are jumping back into Esther this morning, so looking forward to that and uh, this time that we get to spend together. Before we do, just, um, well, I was thinking through that last song we were singing, and uh, it's not the same words, but in, uh, we're given a description in heaven where uh, we're told that the, the angelic beings, seraphim, are circling around the throne room singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they're singing that over and over and over again. And it's a great reminder that God loves to hear praise. So great are you, Lord. We should be able to come and sing about how awesome he is, how wonderful he is. And that's just a taste of what heaven's going to be like because when we go to heaven, we're going to be doing an awful lot. Singing how great God is. We get a taste of that here on this earth, and as we think about the story of Esther and just the story of what God's doing in our lives, we need to be humbled at times and, rec- and realize that He is God and we're not, and that we need to come to Him in prayer and adoration and all of those things. I want to um, at least challenge us to pray here at the beginning. Some of you know Liam went into uh, surgery this, this week, Liam Tidwell. Um, he has, his sternum is going inward rather than, than flat across. Uh, that's a, a simple way to put it, I guess. And so uh, it was getting to a point where his, his heart wasn't able to beat correctly and just things were getting tight inside his chest. And so whenever he started to do a lot of activity, he couldn't breathe well and those types of things. And so they went in and think, I mean, this is a pretty difficult surgery, but basically cut him open and pull everything out and then put some metal across there and bracing and all of that. So that's, that's what happened on Wednesday, I believe it was, and so uh, he has been recovering from that. He was doing pretty well. Yesterday, um, he started to have a little bit of allergic reaction to some of the medication that he was having, and so I just was checking with Julie just to see how things were going, and uh, she said they took him off the IV, but now he has a lot of pain, and so it's hard to get him motivated to get out of bed for anything. So she's praying the doctor will come in soon and put an order in for something that will actually help with, with the pain. That was about 9 o'clock this morning. So I just want to pray for him and the doctors uh, as we think about him. He is, I don't know exactly, age 12, 13? Do you guys know? 12? Okay, 12. So, um, boy, when I was 12, I, I wasn't going through anything like that. So we need to be lifting him up in prayer. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for... The incredible uh, people we have on this earth that can do surgeries like this. Um, God, we, we pray for Liam right now, for his body as it's healing, as it's getting used to something completely different. And there's, uh, I can imagine, an extreme amount of pain, especially without any kind of medication. So, Lord, we pray that, that you would just be able to be with the doctors to help them know what they could give to him, that he would be able to get back up off his, on his feet, uh, that that helps, we know, in, in his recovery. And so we pray that he'd be motivated to get up and, and walk around, even with a little bit of pain that he, he would be having during that time. And be with Julie and Micah, Lord, as they sit back and watch this. It's got to be difficult as parents to see your child go through this, to so strengthen them as well. Uh, Lord, we just lift up that whole situation to you and trust it in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll see how that continues. There's some updates uh, on Facebook from time to time, so that's one way that you can uh, kind of follow along and see how he's doing. 
Well, we are going to get back into Esther. Esther chapter 3 is where we're going to be going. And I'm just excited about some of the things that are happening in our church as I look across it. Um, it's, it's neat to see a church come together with a lot of different people from different backgrounds, different groups, and plugged into different areas of ministry. And I'm just excited to see how God is working in that way. And, and some of the things that we've been seeing recently, just there's more of a desire to, to know God's Word and be in prayer. And that is awesome. That's what we've been praying for from the beginning. And what's great in some of those areas is that you guys are leading the way in that. Uh, it, we call it involved church for a reason because we're involved. We have a hands, foot, mouth, nose, all those pieces that it talks about in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. They're all working together for the honor and glory of Christ and to build each other up. And so I'm excited to see God using our church in a variety of ways, and there's just some really cool things happening. And so, again, that's, that's because you guys are working on those things. And so, really, I appreciate all the different things that are going on in the way that you guys all serve. And so I don't say that enough. I need to uh, because I'm sure there's times you go, huh, I wonder if things are noticed. And, and they really are. And so we appreciate the work you go through. Um, Esther chapter 3 is Haman's plot. So up to this point, we've talked about just kind of setting the, the stage for Esther and why she became queen and all of that. That's chapter 1. And then we got to see last week uh, our different heroes. We got to see Esther and we got to see Mordecai, and we're introduced to him. And as any good story goes, <clears throat> there's got to be a villain, right? I mean, if this was a movie, which, you know, some people have made it into a movie, uh, but if it was a movie, there's got to be a villain. If it was a story, there's got to be a villain. And so we get the villain in chapter 3, and that's Haman. And we're introduced to him, and right away we see that he's a guy that's got, um, he's got an agenda, and he's going to try to see it through. And so our big idea and the thought that we have for today that we just kind of want to capture and bring with us as we read through the text is this, big titles and bad tempers bring big trouble. Okay, it's a bit of a tongue twister, I know, but hopefully it kind of sticks in your brain. So big titles and bad tempers being, bring big trouble. See, I can't even say it right. Um, now, when you think of a title, you might think of a title of like a, a book or something like that, but this is more of a job title. So I went out and I started to do some research and just looking at the different job titles that are out there today. And it's interesting, and you've probably ran across this, right? When, when it used to be that you just had a title, um, you know, that was just a, a simple title, a teacher or something like that. Well, now you have more of a formal title that goes with that. And you see this more and more of more formal titles popping up all over the place. Well, these are off of, uh, of LinkedIn. Somebody went out and did a search on LinkedIn and different occupations, different titles. LinkedIn, by the way, if you're not familiar with it, is like Facebook for business world. Um, and so these are some of the titles that are out there. Okay, maybe you've heard of some of these. One of them is a digital overlord. Digital Overlord. That's a website manager, I think, is what that one is. Um, another one is Creator of Happiness. That would not be a good title to have. Could you imagine the things you would hear from that? I mean, the, the CEO walks in, everybody's kind of grumpy, and like, Creator of Happiness, you know, get with it. Um, or it's one of those kind of jobs that as you're going through life and you come home and somebody says, oh, how was your job today? You can never say that you weren't happy with your job because that would be your fault. You're the creator of happiness, right? So that's, that's an interesting, interesting title. I think I'd have a hard time with that one. Uh, creator of sarcasm, that might work. 
you know, that might be a fun one, but, but not creator of happiness. Uh, retail Jedi, I mean, I think that's a salesman, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that is exactly. Retail Jedi. Or this one, Wizard of Light Bulb Moments. A Wizard of Light Bulb Moments. Could you imagine having that on your business card? Uh, that's a marketing director. A dream alchemist is a lead designer or creator. Uh, there's the chief chatter, which is like the chief of staff. There's a change magician, and I couldn't find a job description of that anywhere. I guess supposedly that's one out there. A, a change magician. That sounds like just somebody that would take your money from you. Like, let me see that change, and poof, it's gone. Um, there's the accounting ninja. There's the chief biscuit dunker. Which is interesting alone that they have biscuit dunkers, but then they have a chief of the biscuit dunkers. And those are the people that are supposed to take those sweet, hard biscuits that you dunk in coffee, and they have to decide whether it's a good biscuit or not, I guess. I don't know. Something like that. And then there's this one, which I actually could probably benefit from this one. There's the emoji translator. Emoji translator. There's a job for that out there. So if you are good at translating those different emojis, there you go. Well, in the business world, if you're looking for a title that has a lot of of power, you're going to look at the CEO, most likely the chief executive officer. If you're in the government, you're going to look at president, VP, or speaker of the house as one who actually has some type of authority. And as you begin to look into this text here, into Haman and his life and how Esther kind of paints the picture, he is someone who rises to a great amount of authority, and he is given a title right here at the beginning of chapter 3. So he has a big title. The problem isn't just that he has a big title. It's okay to have those kind of titles. CEOs, that's fine, those those types of things. The problem is he has a big title and a bad temper, right? And when you have a big title and bad motives, it creates problems. And that's what we're talking about as we look at this text today. So we're going to take a look at Haman's title, we're going to take a look at his temper, and we're going to take a look at the trouble that he causes. So first of all, let's take a look at Haman's title. Let's just ask God to guide us as we get into it. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it is. We thank you that you did not just create us and drop us on this earth and leave us to fend for ourselves, but that you gave us your truth, and it's revealing and opens our eyes to who you are, helps us understand what your purpose is, helps us understand what our purpose is. God, we pray for your guidance and direction as we dig into it today. And we don't want to leave this place without knowing you and the power of the resurrection. So guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther chapter 3, we start with verses 1 through 4. It says, After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agites. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. So now he's second in command. He didn't put him over himself, but he put him in second command here. It says, the entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Now, we get a little more information about Mordecai at this point, that he was part of the king's staff at the gate. But Mordecai decides not to. It goes on to tell us, it says, the members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? Now, I don't know if Haman went to the king and said, hey, king, can you make everybody bow down? Or if he went in his own authority and just said, hey, you guys, you're supposed to bow down to me. 
because I am that powerful and I have the king's authority behind me. It could have been either way. I'm not really sure. But for whatever reason, Mordecai says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to submit to that. Then he adds a little more detail. You go to verse 4. It says, when they had warned him day after day, because they were worried about him, he still would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. And so now we get a little bit more of the story. Up to this point, it's been kind of told to us that both Esther and Mordecai were, were kind of like the secret operatives, you might say, but, but they were ones who were not revealing that they were, were Jews. And it wasn't apparent from the way they were living that they were Jews. But now it comes clearer in chapter 3 that they are, in fact, of the Jewish descent because Mordecai tells them. And so that gives you just a taste of, of kind of, again, setting the scene for the villain and how the villain develops in this story. So now we're going to see Haman's temper as you continue to move forward in verses 5 through 6. It says, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. Okay, he was angry. He's let his temper just let go, just fly, right? It goes on, verse 6, it says, When he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. So now you get him seeing what Mordecai's doing, understanding that he's a Jew, and now he becomes even more angry and says, not only am I going to destroy Mordecai, I'm going to take all of the Jews in this region with him. All throughout the, uh, the provinces. So, why would somebody hate the Jewish people or hate Mordecai that much? That's kind of the question you're left with, right? They do kind of make it into a racial issue there. Verse 6, when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, he didn't like the Jews, and it's very possible that the whole reason Mordecai didn't bow down to him was because he knew he didn't like the Jewish people. And you might start to say, well, why wouldn't people like Jewish people? We'll just go back in history. You go back 4,000 years ago or so, and you've got, uh, well, it's more than that. You go back to the time when, when Israel was in Egypt and Pharaoh tried to wipe out the Jews. They were becoming too powerful. And then when God showed his power, that even infuriated him even more, and he chased after them after they had been released and he wanted to kill him. You got stories like this, or stories of other, um, throughout the Old Testament, stories of other nations coming in, trying to overtake the Jews and wipe them out completely. And then you might think to yourself, well, that, that's just back then. But what's happened in our recent history? The last hundred years. Yeah. Over in Germany, some crazy guy came to power and wanted to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. So it's not unusual for this to happen. There's something about being God's people. And when you have God's people on the face of the earth, the rest of the world wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. It's interesting, isn't it? So here, Morta, or here uh, Haman sets up and gets ready to, to wipe them off, he's going to have this great plan of how he can destroy them. Now, to give you a little bit of the history and possibly why you have this, this guy named Haman who is an Amalekite, uh, you need to go back to 1 Samuel. I'm going to give you a little bit of the context here. 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 11, it says, One day Samuel said to Saul, okay, this is King Saul, 
So this is going back a few years now. One day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. So when Israel came out of Egypt, they were going through the wilderness and they were going through a valley and the nation of Amalek came and they said, you know what, we want to destroy the Israelites here. So the Amalekites gathered together, and they started to come in against against them in battle. And Moses goes up, and I don't know if you remember this story. Some of you might. Moses goes up on a hill, and this is the story where he, he raises the staff in the air. And as long as the staff is in the air, Israel is winning the battle. But whenever he got tired and his arms started to fall down, Israel would lose the battle. So then they prop up his arms, and they keep his arms up all day. And then finally, at the end, Israel is victorious. Well, the Amalekites were not completely destroyed at that point, so of course they have a remnant and they, uh, they regain their strength and, and so forth. So verse 3 goes on, now um, go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, and camels, and donkeys. So Saul is given the command to go and wipe them out because of what they had done. Okay. So he goes, Saul mobilized his army at Telaim, and there were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 from Judah. Then Saul and his armies went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul sent this warning to the Kenites, move away from where the Amalekites live. So there's another nation there. He says, you guys probably want to leave uh, or you will die with them, right? For you showed kindness to us. All the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites, they're like, okay, thanks for the heads up. We're going to pack up and leave. Smart move. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but completely destroyed everyone else. And then he did this. Saul and his men spared Agag's life, which was a no-no, and kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, which again was a no-no. In fact, all that appealed to them, they kept. They destroyed only what was worthless and of poor quality. Then the Lord said to Samuel, and this is when Saul gets the bad news, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he, was not, he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. So it gives you a little bit of Israel's history, and it tells you why maybe the, the son of Kish was mentioned earlier, which brings you to Saul uh, in chapter 2. And then he tells us why, uh, why this guy Haman is an Agagite, and that relates it to the Amalekites. And, and you begin to see that this feud has continued up to this point in time in Esther's story. Seems odd, but throughout Israel's history, this has always been the case. In fact, you go back to Abraham who was given the promise that he was going to have many descendants, if he would have just stuck with God's promise and just had Isaac, he'd probably have been a little better off. But he also had another son, Ishmael. And Ishmael became a father of nations. In fact, if you were to look at the history of Israel and the Jews, and you look at the the history of the Muslims, you trace it all the way back, and the history of the Jews go back to Isaac, and the history of the Muslims go back to Ishmael. And that feud has continued to this day. In fact, that's one of the greatest reasons there's a war that's taking place there. Now, the great news is we know that the gospel works for both. 
today. But as far as a nation goes and a group of people, that has continued to be an issue all throughout history. Now, today, you might say, well, good thing Israel has gotten over that. But Israel still has some hard feelings towards Haman. And so, Reuben told me a story last week, and I was going to have Reuben come up and share because I think it will give you a good idea that this this type of thing is still happening with Israel. So, go ahead and come on up, and we'll see if we can get you a microphone here. Red, you can tell us what you found out. Thank you, Pastor Ryan. Yeah. So, as we look at the history of Israel in the Bible, as well as what we know in contemporary history, they've had a lot of dark times. And when you look at some of the main points in time, those dark times have turned into celebrations. And let me just list off a couple of them. So, uh, just some that stand out, not all of them came out of dark times. Shabbat is that weekly celebration on the Sabbath, Saturday, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah, the Passover, Yom HaShoah, which is the Holocaust Day, which came about about 75 years ago, and Yom Hazakaro, and Tisha B'Av, and Purim. And some of those really came out of dark times in their, in their history. And, you know, I'm encouraged even today in one of the songs we sang, a cross meant to kill is my victory. Out of dark times, Christ arose and we have victory. And that was on, on the first day of the week, so the eighth day. And we celebrate that every week. Uh, a number of years ago, I was out in Washington, D.C., and I had some downtime on Saturday, a Sabbath. So I thought, well, why don't I go and visit a Jewish synagogue, and it was just a few blocks away, so I walked on over and uh, went in, and they gave me three things when I, when I came in. One was a yarmulke to put on my head, and a prayer book to hold in my hand, and they gave me an object, which I'll describe as, uh, as I get into this. Um, very interesting to be holding those two things in my hands, and and then I, I stood beside this elderly gentleman. He looked at me and he said, are you a heeb? And I had no idea what he <laughs> asked. And I, I was thinking, what does that mean? And then in the context, well, that's short for Hebrew. And I looked around and I realized, okay, I've got some spiritual DNA that I can share with these folks, but I'm truly not a Hebrew uh, as I stand here. Think of our context. Uh, if somebody walks in, do we turn to them and say, hey, are you a Christian? Um, you know, we, we might say, hey, how are you doing? And welcome. But maybe we could be more forthright. I don't know. Uh, well, it happened to be Purim. And what do they do on, at Purim? They read through the book of Esther. They call it the Megillah. And they read through the whole book the night before and the morning of. And what's interesting is this object that I had in my hand, it's a noisemaker. It's, I forget the name for it, but it's a spinner toy that makes ratchety noise. And, and some had kazoos and some had other banger uh, noisemakers. And everybody had these noisemakers. And when you get in Esther to chapter 3, the name of Haman shows up. And it shows up 54 times in the book of Esther. And every time that name is mentioned... They make as much noise as possible to drown out his name and eradicate him from their history and celebrate that young girl that stood up for the Lord and celebrate God's deliverance 
from that person who wanted to have that first Holocaust. And it was a very interesting time to be there and celebrate with them the rescue that God provided through Esther. So today, let's try that. We don't have little spinner <laughs> things, but we can stomp our feet on the floor and say boo and hiss. And so let me read two verses with Haman's name in it. Okay, so we're, we're going to try this out and see if we can do this. And when Haman saw that... Oh. All right, very good. Some of you were at the BSU game, and you <laughs> booed and you hissed when the ref got it wrong, right? Okay, so pretend. This is okay today, okay? Uh, you can make lots of noise. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled, was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to, sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Thank you. Thank you, Reuben. Appreciate that. That gives you a little bit of the context and what happens uh, even today when people read through this or the Jews read through this. So appreciate that. And yeah, as we get kind of to the end of the book, we'll, we'll talk about Purim a little bit more. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons we have the book of Esther was to tell us how that, uh, that celebration came into existence. So. So that gives you a little bit of the background, a little bit of the history of, of why uh, Haman and Mordecai were enemies and why Esther is bringing attention to that. Uh, so let's see what Haman does. This is Haman's trouble that he causes for Israel, and it starts in verse 7 and goes to the end of the chapter, and we see a little bit more of what kind of trouble he creates for the Israelites. Verse 7, it says, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the king Ahasuerus Twelfth year, the pure, that is, the lot was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now, I want to go back a little bit and kind of explain this, because you can read through that and go, what kind of just happened there? So, what's, what's going on is it seemed like every year Haman had this opportunity to go out, and, and we're going to do it this way. It's not really clear exactly how the casting of the lots works, so we're going to pretend like, like you're kind of doing the hopscotch thing, and there's these squares on the floor, and each one of them represents a month, and he would take something like a dice or a stone or something, and he would cast it, and whatever month it landed on... That is the, the month he would be able to carry out his desire or his wish. And then he can name what that desire or wish was. So this is another spot I think you see God's providence happening. Because this is the first day of the year, first, first month of the year. And he's got 12 months here. And he chooses, or he, his, the lot lands on the 12th month, which gives you a full year for him to carry out this deed. Which gives God a little more time and gives... The Jews, a little more time, once they find out that they can um, defend themselves, gives them a little more time to prepare for it. So again, that's God's providence at work. So he goes ahead and he, he casts a lot, and the lot falls on the twelfth month, and then he makes his request. Then Haman informed King Nehazarus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, when worded that way, as a king who's trying to bring unity together, you're like, hmm, we probably ought to do something about that. 
And so here's his idea. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up in authorizing their destruction, and then I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. Now, that's a lot of silver. In fact, if you had dump trucks, you know, just like construction dump trucks running by carrying, I don't know, 20 tons apiece, which is a lot of material, um, that would take uh, roughly 18 to 19 dump trucks. Okay, that's a lot of, of silver, right? So he says there's this much silver. Now, I don't think uh, uh, Haman had that much in his own reserves. What's probably been argued here by students of, of Esther and those who have looked into it more is that really what he's saying is once we go out and take over Israel and the Israelites, we will be able to bring in that much money from our plunder. And once we do, then we can put in the royal treasury. So that's an added perk to any king, right? Kind of, hey, we can add some more, and then he can have maybe another 180-day banquet like he did in the first chapter. So verse 10, the king removes his signatory, like his signature, from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. So go ahead, do it, do whatever you want to, do whatever you want with the money, put in whatever treasury you want to, it's all up to you, go for it. So the royal scribes were summoned in the 13th day of the first month, and the order was, Written exactly as Haman commanded, it was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. And it was written in the name of King Hazaras and, and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day the 13th day of Adar, the 12th of the month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, and here's, I think, this is the most important part of the whole chapter, while the city of Susa was in confusion. So you come to the end of this chapter and you read this portion, and I think it's very similar to what our world experienced roughly 100 years ago when you start to see somebody rise to power and they become a powerful person with a lot of anger and they want to wipe out a nation. The rest of the world's kind of going, that doesn't make much sense. We don't really understand what's going on. Unfortunately, in that situation, God, again, providentially saved Israel. Yes, there were many that lost their lives. But from that situation, now you have Israel as, as a country. And what's amazing is God continues to bless Israel as a country, and they're a powerful country. But there was confusion then because a guy had a big title and a bad temper, and he brought trouble. Now, for you and I, I think the point is pretty clear, okay? I don't think we have to really drive home that idea, that you put somebody in power with a bad temper or a secret agenda or something like that, there's going to be trouble for people out there. I think the question for you and I is, are we looking to people with power? Are we looking to people with authority to maybe accomplish something that God wants to accomplish? And the actual answer to all of that is, titles do not bring power, 
Christ does. And you don't have to have an incredible title in order to accomplish much for Jesus Christ. And you don't have to have an incredible title to go out and have courage to live your faith. I have a title as, as lead pastor of Involved Church, the best church in the entire world, right? Okay. That was kind of sad. Come on, come on now. That has to be a little more lively than that. No, it is, it is somewhat of a joke. Somewhat of a joke. No, it is. But God's, God's church is all across the world, and it's awesome everywhere. But that title doesn't mean that I am better at spreading the gospel, better at discipling, or more powerful at getting the Word of God proclaimed. It's a title. Faithfulness to God's Word, courage to go out and live for Him, to be faithful to Him, that's where we find power and strength and courage, not in the title. And so really a point I think that's, that's worth making as we think about courage and, and this call to courage, like Esther, she has that great title, Queen Esther, but that didn't make her courageous. She still had to find courage. And so you cannot depend on a title for courage. You have to depend, at least in our context, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She didn't have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She had the law of Moses and she had the history that went with it. Today, we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we rest our power on. That's what, excuse me, that's what we rest our courage on. It's because we know that He is with us. Psalm 31.24 says, So be strong and courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Be strong and courageous. I love this passage. I'm going to read several different verses from 1 Corinthians 15 just to drive home this point. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you will stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. And so he's telling the church in Corinth there, some of you may be pretenders out there. You might be hypocrites out there. You might be saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you truly don't. So ah, there might be some of those. But for those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, this is what you've believed. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as Scripture said. He was buried and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. That is so important to remember that Christ not only died on the cross, but He rose from the dead. And He fulfilled all of the prophecies. Then, as proof, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by more than 500 witnesses of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died even, or excuse me, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. But tell me this, since we preached Christ rose from the dead, why are some saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? And certainly that happened then and it happens today. And Paul goes on and makes this point, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. We're all sinners. We need to be saved by the death of Christ. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you and I have no eternal hope, right? 
And so we hold to that truth that he raised Christ from the dead. And then he moves on, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Verse 50, what I am, what am, what I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown, For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. And we call that process, like right now we're going through transformation, uh, sanctification. This process is more of that glorification where it's complete and it's final. For our dying bodies must be transformed or glorified into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is a sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. If God can do that for you, bring you from a dead state in sin into a brand new life in heaven, he can give you a little bit of courage along the way. Esther had to walk into a very scary situation, walk into the king, and demand something that she thought This could end my life. But she had courage because of what God had already shown her in history and for our little phrase that comes from next week that you were here for such a time as this. God providentially put you here. And you and I have times in our lives where we're going to have to step forward and be a little bit courageous and believe God has put me here for such a time as this, and I'm going to have to step through my little spots of, well, I don't know if I like this so much. I don't feel so comfortable. I'm afraid. We're going to have to step through that and push ourselves through that because God has asked us to do something incredible. One, he's asked us to share our faith with people that are dying and don't know Jesus Christ. We need to be faithful to do that because he's the only hope. He's asked us to cling to our faith. We have to cling to it because there are going to be plenty of things that want to pull us away. We have to cling to what he has given us. Our faith in Christ, that Christ alone is what saves us. And there will be many people that will come along just like there were 2,000 years ago, and Paul talks about it all the time, where people will come in and tell you, Christ is not enough, you've got to believe in other things. And we always have to come back and say, no, Christ is enough. And believe in him and what he's done. Now, to bring us kind of full circle and go back to the idea of title, you don't have to be a rock star pastor in order to lead people to Christ, right? Or a missionary. You don't have to have the title evangelist to point people to Christ, to shepherd people, to guide them, to help them. Now, the other side is true, too. If you have that title, we're told very specifically we're not to lord it over and think of ourselves as more highly than we ought. Romans twelve three it says, For the right grace given to me, I tell every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. 
Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So each one of us, depending on what God has called us to do, whether it is a pastor, whether it is a missionary, whether it is an elder of a church or a deacon or a team coordinator or someone who, who serves alongside other people, whatever your capacity is, whatever your title is, that's not going to define what you have to do in life. Your actions do, how your faith does, how you plug into Christ. Those are the things that help you find courage. And that's what I want to help you cling to today. There's a reason for this, and the reason I, I brought this kind of to the forefront. There's a lot of ways you can go with chapter 3, I suppose. But I think you obviously see Haman is brought to a, power of, a position of power. And in our culture today, one of the things you see that's, that's very prevalent is this idea of labels and titles. Children are growing up, and, and when there's behavioral issues or there's learning issues or things like that, they're usually given a label right away, and then that child has that label for the rest of their life. That's part of this society that we grew up in. And sometimes, and I hear this sometimes, where people will grow up and say, well, I was diagnosed with this, therefore I can't. If God's calling you to step outside, and I'm not a, not a doctor on this, so I have to be a little bit careful, but if God is calling you to challenge that, then at least consider it. If you're saying, I can't do this because I have this label, but you feel like God is urging you to, listen to God in those situations. And then there's titles. We love titles. We like to have titles. I was once given a, uh, a business card. I think this is a question on your life group study guide, but I was given this business card, and on it, it was from a pastor, and it said, I can't remember if it was Pastor Reverend or Reverend Pastor at the beginning, and then their name and then it gave like all of their, uh, you know, cred- accreditation afterwards. So it had, they were, you know, a doctorate, which I found out was actually from a foreign country. And it was an honorary doctorate. So that was kind of, but yeah, that's a side note. And then there was a, it was, um, there was, you know, their master's and a couple other different degrees and all of this after it. And, and honestly, I read it and I, I wasn't that impressed. It was there, I think, to be impressive but it wasn't that impressive. Because what would be more impressive is probably, you know, here I am, Ryan Frank, follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know what I'd put after that. I stumble and fall, but God helps me through it all. I don't know. Um, Something along those lines. Because the glory is, is to be God's not mine. And so I don't know what you're trying to get in your faith. I don't know if you're trying to rise up, you know, grow or or step up on a ladder and and grow it and, and so forth. But God says very clearly, and Jesus says very clearly, that we're to be servants. And that ought to be our title. In fact, when you look at Paul and his writing almost every time, he says, I am Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's what he sees himself as, and that's what we ought to see ourselves as. And so we cling to him to help us for courage and strength to do the things he's asked us to do. Well, we're going to challenge you with a few things this morning as we come to a close and reflect upon these things. Three questions. I have three. I know I usually do two. 
We expand you a little bit more. But the first one is probably one that doesn't take too long to answer. Do you know someone who doesn't believe in Jesus? Does that person need you or someone with a title to talk to them? It's kind of a, a question I'm sure you've already answered just from going through the passage. But the truth is, if God's brought you to that person, then that person needs you, not somebody with a title. Um, secondly, if you believe God can raise a dead person to life, which is Jesus, what can he do for you this week to help build your courage? Okay? If you've placed your faith in Christ, yes, you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for your sins. If he can bring a person to life, he can certainly help you in the area of courage. And then this last one is more just something that you can follow up with and do this week. Read 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter. It's about 60 verses, a little less than that. Uh, at least twice this week. At least twice. Maybe you'll read it once a day. Uh, but read it because it is such a powerful passage on the gospel of Christ and how we have received power from the resurrection of Christ. And it ought to motivate us. It ought to help us to live our faith out and follow Christ. So I'll give you a couple minutes to think on those things. I want to again invite you to pray as the worship team comes up or afterwards, we'll have some people here on the sides and you can come up and pray. If you have a question about the message, if you have a question about your faith in Christ, if you have a question about what it takes to be saved, to become a follower of Christ, then I'd love to talk to you about that. If you'd like to be baptized and make a public declaration of your faith, we can arrange that too. So think about these things.